Broadcasting from deep in the heart of North America, five influential podcasters from coast to coast come together to discuss a variety of topics from around the world. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Power Hour! Welcome back to Coast to Coast Power Hour. This is Michael Glenn Moore. I'm the host for this afternoon. And we have Christopher Stoli, who is also uh, a, co a host, who is acting as a co-host today. And he's going to start off by introducing himself and talking about his podcast so that we know about a little bit about where he comes from and how to find his, his stuff. Well, I am Christopher Stoli, and I am the host of Breaking the Fourth Wall podcast. Uh, which is part of Realm of the Mist Entertainment, which uh, used to be a network uh, collaboration company. That's what I'm going to talk about today, is right off the bat, Realm of the Mist Entertainment is closing as a network company. As of today, there is no longer Realm of the Mist as a network. Realm of the Mist will continue to be a production company for breaking the fourth wall. But all the show, subsequent in-house shows that were created by Realm of the Mist Entertainment, i.e. Breaking the Fourth Wall, After Hours, uh, uh, God, how many shows I used to have. <laughs> all of them are being combined into one show, and that is Breaking the Fourth Wall. Breaking the Fourth Wall is going to take an iteration of no longer being just a half-hour to 45-minute interview show, and instead will be becoming a two-hour kind of radio broadcast best way to describe it it'll still do interviews but it'll do it as a segment as opposed to being the whole entire intention of the show now the reason i'm closing realm of the mist as a network is because of the fact that i have taken over uh presidential responsibilities to sj network i am now one of the main guys of sj network uh given to me by steve joiner uh, there's going to be a couple of us, but we are going to be handling all that, which means that even breaking the fourth wall and, and the subsequent Remlimus channels and, and all that will still continue to honor our syndications. All shows that have been syndicated through Remlimus will still be syndicated through SJ Network and premiered on Remlimus channels, which are breaking the fourth wall. So, so that's where... That's where Coast to Coast Power Hour is also located now. Since we're doing video, we've been doing uh, audio, so that's available on all podcast platforms. But if you want to find the video of uh, Coast to Coast Power Hour, you go to Realm of the Mist YouTube. Yes, YouTube.com slash Realm of the Mist Vape is the uh, is the URL if you want it, or just look up Realm of the Mist. We're the only ones there anyway. So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so. Long story short is uh, I, I 
was struggling with, with uh, having in-house shows, trying to do them all myself. I'm combining them into one show, Breaking the Fourth Wall, and taking over the network responsibilities of SJ Network, uh, at least one of the people that's doing it, uh, to, to cover all syndications and everything else. But as far as what Realm of the Mist itself is producing, it will just be breaking the fourth wall. And that new look, that new feel is coming in the next couple of weeks. Cool. Uh, why don't you talk a little bit about what uh, the uh, breaking the fourth wall is? I mean, exactly. Is it, that's an interview podcast. Is what, uh, is what, I mean, what do you talk about on, on breaking the fourth wall? Uh, well, the tagline to breaking the fourth wall is always everybody's got a story. Uh, when it became a interview show, which is what it, it, its current incarnation is, is that I would talk to anybody from celebrity, director, author, publicist, whatever, down to a sixth grade school teacher or the guy next door who was in Vietnam or whatever. The fact of the matter is, is that everybody's got a story. And I think it's interesting to be able to dig in and find out about the person's story what 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 made them who they are what made them choose the life they chose you know uh what funny iterations of the stories in their lives have they have they come across that normal people probably may not have come across just different stuff like that it's it's uh it's a it's a it's a delve into the human side of every profession uh, in a way, I guess you can kind of say breaking the fourth wall, especially when it comes to celebrities, musicians and stuff. It really helps to show that these guys still put on their pants one leg at a time, the same as we do. But with the reiteration of breaking the fourth wall, think of it more as a, for lack of better term here, I don't like to use this term, but for lack of better term, think of it as kind of a Howard Stern show. Uh, is what it's going to be. It's going to be segmented uh, portions where we talk about funny things in the news, where we talk about um, certain subject matters. And of course, there will be the interview segment. I will continue to do the interviews. I'm not going to stop that. Yeah. So that's still going to be a major portion of Realm uh, Breaking the Fourth Wall. But uh, it's only going to be one of three or four segments through the whole entire show. Well, you have a co-host or is it all you? Uh, for the interviews, it'll probably still be all me. Uh, that's still in the work, but I'm actually putting one of the reasons why it's going to take a couple weeks is I am putting together a panel. So I will continue to do just uh, release just breaking the fourth wall interviews until I have a permanent panel in place. Some uh, people that I know have good senses of humor that I get along with very well that will be uh, available for once a week uh, recordings to put together, uh, put together the other segments and go from there. Cool. Well, let me tell a little bit about what I do as a podcaster. I have two uh, podcasts that I work on. The first one is In a City Like Yours, which is a, a true storytelling podcast where I invite my guests to come on and relate a story that has uh, something that's happened to them that's changed their life in some significant way. Um, and and I, I deal with Steve Joyner as well. So I get a lot of guests through him. So they're mostly all artists. So what we do is, as you know, aside from talking about their personal story, we also talk about their career as an artist. I like to make sure that that happens. I, I'm personally, I'm an artist. I'm a painter and sculptor. So I really enjoy talking to other artists. And uh, that, that's something that brings joy to me. And I really thank Steve Joyner for bringing me all these fantastic guests. He's been phenomenal. Right. 
the other podcast I, I work on is called Scott H. Silverman's Happy Hour. Uh, Scott is a addiction cri crisis coach. He has been in the business for over 30 years and is an expert on addiction recovery. I'm not, I'm just the co-host and I'm pretty much quiet during that uh, recording. I let him take over and do everything. So I'm, I'm basically just the producer, but I also talk a little bit on the podcast. So I guess I'm, I can be considered a co-host. Um, but anyway, those are all, both those uh, podcasts and it's like yours and Scott H. Silverman's happy hour can be found on the SJ network, s-j-network.com and on all major podcast platforms. Uh, and the third um, podcast that I work on is, is what we're doing today here is Coast to Coast Power Hour. This is maybe our fifth episode, I believe. Uh, we had been doing them once a month. Now we're doing them twice a month and we're doing video. So that's pretty exciting. And um, I really, uh, um, I was very hesitant about doing video. We're starting to do video for Scott H. Silverman's happy hour as well. So I'm trying to get into that realm of being visual rather than being just audio. So uh, you have to bear with me on that. We well, had... I think I think video is very helpful uh, in the podcast community, especially nowadays uh, with the COVID crisis going on and, and, and the pandemic and people feeling kind of alienated from each other. I, I've noticed a surge in video podcasting as opposed to audio. And I think it's because of the human connection. You can actually see human faces uh, as opposed to just hearing voices. I think that's where it, it's really come into play. I could be completely wrong, but, you know, from my personal experience and what I've seen since I released both audio and video of, of the shows that I do, I've seen a surge in video usage, you know, on YouTube, where normally YouTube was a little bit more stagnant than the audio. And I think I think COVID had a lot to do with that. Yeah, I agree. As, as far as people wanting to see who they're listening to, that's something I'm a big podcast fan. So before I started podcasting myself, I always want to know what the what the podcasters looked like. And you know, I'd, I'd Google them and try to find them. And nine times out of 10, they didn't have any images up because a lot of podcasters like to stay anonymous. You know, they, they won't give their city where they live or uh, any any personal information because they don't want to be was it called doxxed by you know crazy fans um but so yeah I, I personally like seeing who i'm listening to so i've got images of my guests on my website for inner city like yours i've got two galleries one for 2019 and, and the one we're working on for 2020 so you can go there to look at who the guests are uh, uh, but now with coast coast power hour you can also go to the website uh youtube and see us personally uh, you know, it's funny too when you say that because uh, I, I I'm a huge fan, I'm a huge fan of listening to uh, like uh, recorded uh, Dungeons and Dragons sessions, and one of the one of the groups that I really really enjoy uh, listening to is a group out of Canada uh, called Dum Dums and Dragons. Uh, they're part of the Dum Dums and Dice uh, production company, and uh, you know I listened to them do that, and I did listen to them do their uh, Star Wars show known as uh, Dumb Scum and Villainy, which is a oh. Star Wars RPG. And I, I remember like listening to their voices, and especially like one of their players. I, I can't remember the guy's name off the top of my head, but I mean he sounds like Phil Hartman, like that's his voice, you know. So the first time I ever saw video of them playing and who was playing what character, it blew my mind because sometimes it's just funny seeing that the faces don't match the voices. <laughs> yeah, that, that is wild. I, I do the same thing when I'm listening to music. 
because I kind of, you know, you picture what the singer looks like by what his voice sounds. And then nine times out of 10, again, it's not anything what you think. Yeah, so I, I absolutely, I absolutely know where you're coming from with that. It's, it's hilarious sometimes to, well, again, when, when I got into podcasting, I was listening to, to podcasts on YouTube and they were doing videos and I was listening to things like Hollywood Babylon, you know, which is Kevin Smith and Ralph Garman, or I was listening to Collider movie talk, you know, and so they were doing video right off the bat. So I always knew what they look like. It took me a while to find the audio version of podcasts and uh, and discovering what a huge world it was you know so my introduction my introduction to podcasting was video to begin with just something i'd stumbled across one time on youtube and got addicted to it <laughs> yeah the way i listen to podcast and something i've done from the very beginning is i can't i've got to be doing something while i'm listening to podcasts so what i do is i play solitaire on my computer and listen to podcasts. So that, that, because of that, I never really got into going to YouTube and finding the podcast I listened to on YouTube, which, which was something I didn't really know I could, could have done back in the day when I first started listening. Because I was listening to things like um, Sword and Scale and Generation Y. I was real big on uh, true crime. So, and those guys, they don't, you know, you, you, there are images of Mike Boudet and um, the, the Generation Y guys out there and stuff. So that was interesting because I was able to see them. And when I did, especially for the Generation Y, uh, I saw the images of the guys, but they didn't have the names. So I had, I picked the one I thought, okay, this must be this guy because of his voice sounds like he looks. And it turned out that later on when I did find out their names and that matched up with their images, that was totally different than what I had in my mind. Um, so, well, we're supposed to have two other podcasters join us today, and it looks like they're not going to join us. So, Chris, it's, all, it's just me and you today. That's, that's fine. It could be you and me. It, it's funny because when you, when you say you were listening, uh, listening to podcasts and not necessarily watching it, the way I stumbled across it, I can tell you exactly how I stumbled across it. Uh, I used to be a maintenance mechanic and uh, for an apartment complex, and when I would work on an empty apartment just to fill the silence you know, while you're working, I would put on YouTube in the background and usually it was something Star Wars. I was a Star Wars fan. That's how I discovered podcasting because it was Collider's Jedi Council that wound up coming on for some, I forget what I was listening to. I was listening to something, uh, some, some video about like uh, theories or speculations about the, 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 the Star Wars universe. This is even before, uh, you know, uh, uh, the force awakens came out. So we were still in the, original six movies at that point you know and i was just listening to it and then had it as noise in the background and then all of a sudden you know youtube's algorithm decided the next video to play was an episode of jedi council and it made me stop i said what the hell is this and i just i listened to the whole hour episode you know and then all of a sudden i'm like you know going to collider's you know uh channel and finding all these different shows, every weekly shows of, of Jedi Council, listening to them do their thing. And then I discovered they were doing movie stuff. And then that's when I was like, well, what other things can I find out here? You know, and uh, consequently, that's what led me to, to launch Breaking the Fourth Wall. But I mean, I, I get where you're coming from. I, I had to be doing something. I was never really watching the videos. I had them on in the background sitting on like a kitchen counter while I'm working in the living room, 
you know, redoing trim or or, <laughs> or painting uh, windowsills. You know? <laughs> you know, it's, it's the mindless work that you have to be doing. It's like when I play solitary, that's not something I really focus on. I just kind of do it. And, you mm -hmm. know, my, my hand and my, my brain thoughts and all that are kind of automatic. And that way I can listen to what uh, the podcast is. I, I, I do books the same way. I like to listen to a lot of books on audio. And that's how I, uh, how I do that. I have to be playing solitaire at the same time as I'm listening to the books in order for me to actually comprehend. I can't just sit there with nothing going on other than listening to something. And when it comes to reading books these days, because of these medications that I'm on, they, they uh, make it difficult for me to, to comprehend and to stay focused on reading. I listen to most of my books audio, and that's really the best way for me is to stick uh, Alexa on and, and listen to a book that, that's on Kindle and play solitaire. Well, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a moment here, and I'm going to interview Michael Moore. Because I'm curious about something that he said while he was doing his uh, podcast introduction. Uh, and I, I realized I've never actually interviewed you. <laughs> I'm going to do it on the Coast to Coast Power Hour. Screw okay, it. I'll see what we can say. Let's, let's go. The biggest thing that, that caught my mind that, that, that made me want to uh, ask this question was uh, the, 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 the connection to uh, Scott Silverman. Uh, you being a painter and, and an artiste and, uh, and a sculptor, and him being a crisis counselor, how did you two even hook up and even more so decide to go into podcasting together, especially like you said, with the, with the, the, the power, uh, the happy hour podcast, you don't really say much. You're just kind of there. Yeah. Well, first of all, Steve got us in touch with each other. Uh, I don't know if, I guess, uh, uh, Scott was, had, had hired Steve to get on some podcasts and so forth. So uh, I was one of the podcasts that Steve sent him to. Now, his, his addiction story is very intense and, you know, it was about an hour long. And I released that in September 2019, which in September is the is addiction recovery month for the year. So I had uh, all the episodes I released in, in that month had to deal with addiction and recovery. So I talked to Scott and uh, we got a really good episode and, I was just blown away by his story and how far he's come, the depths of despair that he'd gotten to. He was, you know, found himself on the edge of a windowsill ready to jump in New York City. Uh, you know, he was just right there and somebody walked into the room and said, Scott, what are you doing? And that stopped him. So he was that close to killing himself. And thank God he didn't because he's really somebody who is out there for, for anybody. He gives out his phone number. The only person I know that gives out his personal phone number every time on every episode, he, he wants people to call him if they're in need because he wants to help. And um, so that's very, very um, interesting to me. Now, later on, Scott decided that he wanted to start a podcast. So he called Steve and tried, they were kind of, you know, going back and forth about uh, how that would happen. And Steve thought, well, let's talk to Michael. So they got to me and because basically just for me to produce the show, not to be a part of it. So that's why I'm not really a vocal member of the show, uh, especially now at, at the beginning I was, it was pretty much one-on-one, uh, -on -one, just Scott and me. And then, then we started doing interviews. So that now goes to where I stay back in the background and Scott does the interview and talks, right. talks the most. So I don't really talk a lot now, but I did it first. But anyway, so Steve got us together and, 
suggested that we call it, call it the happy hour. And we looked up the happy hour and that was taken by like six or seven podcasts. So we just said Scott, Scott H. Silverman's happy hour. And that, you know, kind of made it our, our brand. Uh, and that is now going on and beginning in September will also be video uh, on YouTube under Scott H. Silverman's happy hour. But that's how I met Scott. And I'm, I'm very pleased with the way the, the show has, has gone and the way it's going now. And I'm really excited about doing the video aspect. That's awesome. That, that, that was, that, that was the interview. I mean, I, I, I would definitely sit you down for breaking the fourth wall. We could discuss that off air, but uh, I, you, when you stated the, the, your, your interconnections to the happy hour, I was like, oh, wait, how's this work? Uh, you know, we've never actually discussed it. So uh, yeah. So that, that's awesome. Yeah. That's something I talk about freely. And also I talk about freely. I'm, I'm bipolar. Um, so I, you know, I, I, try to discuss that as much as possible. So I've been on several podcasts where I discuss my uh, travels through the realm of bipolar, being an artist, the medications that I take not only make me have, give me difficulty reading to comprehend reading and stay focused. It also has zapped my creativity. So I'm not creating my art as much as I used to. And I mean, I'll go a year without doing anything, which is really bad for me. It's, it depresses me because being an artist is such a part of my life and it's part of my identity and, and not creating is, is really um, something that hurts. Uh, but anyway, so I, I like to talk about that as well. So if, if that's interest you, uh, we can discuss oh, yeah. that in, in an episode. Oh yeah. Cause I mean, uh, as a, as a musician, a songwriter, I, I know exactly what you mean. Uh, when I stopped doing live performance music and, and, and all, I, I couldn't stop writing. I still write lyrics. To this day, I still write lyrics, even though I don't have a band or anything to promote or, or whatever else. I, you know, I, guess they, I guess you can kind of say they're lyrical poems than, than music because they're not set to sound. They're just you know, words. But uh, I, I know what you mean. If I, go, if I go too long without sitting down and writing something, it, it almost feels like a part of me is lost. And it, it really interests me that, that like you said, you, you, you have a hard time focusing. How badly does it affect your, 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 your art? Like you're in the middle of a, a making a statue. I, I don't really know exactly what you, you do art wise, but you're in the middle of making a statue and you just put your tools down and walk away from it. Like it's, well, it's kind of like attention deficit disorder in a sense of like, oh, look, squirrel, and you forget what you were working on. I mean, yeah, it's kind of like that. I, uh, the the main thing is I don't even start. It stops me from starting. Uh, you know, I think that if I can get started, I might be able to finish something, but I, I don't even start. I'm, I'm kind of wiped out because of the medications I'm on. The uh, I'm on antipsychotics and mood stabilizers. The mood stabilizers, I think, are what has giving me the most difficulty uh, and the antipsychotics are pretty powerful in themselves and they kind of make me groggy and I'll slur my words. So when I'm talking, I, I sound like I have an accent or I'm, well, I'm Southern, so I do have an accent, but <laughs> I, I slur my words and, and it, that's something that, you know, being a podcaster, I'm like, Oh my gosh, but it's not something I can control, you know, unless I stop, stop taking my meds and that's not going to happen. But, well, uh, that, yeah. that was going to be my next question, which is, I know it's a dangerous question. And obviously it's not something that I would ever recommend anybody. If you have medications, you know, that were prescribed to you, obviously they were prescribed to you for a reason. However, the question is what would happen if you did stop taking them? 
Well, I would have an episode, either a manic episode or a depressive episode, and either one of those is not a good thing for me. Uh, I, I would rather not do my art than go through a, a huge depressive episode. I, I mean, they, they, the ones that I were ha was having lasted months, depression, really deep depression, and the manic episodes would last you know, like a week or so, and then I'd go into a depression, and then a manic episode and so forth. So, you know, it's, it's just not worth it. Um, you know, I've, I, I would like to maybe explore other medications and I've talked to my psychiatrist about it, you know, maybe not the antipsychotic, but the mood stabilizer going, finding something else that would help me get me back on the track of doing my art. But, uh, you know, we're kind of thinking, well, it's working now. You're not depressed. You're not manic. So, you know, yeah, why, why change it? But to me, it seems it seems like it would still be kind of a quality of life question. It may be stabilizing your moods. Maybe you're not going through the, the, the depression fits or or whatever else. But again, you're losing ambition. You're losing desire to 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 do what it is you do. That seems to me, uh, if I were a psychiatrist, that that would that that would warrant looking into other medications because of the fact that even though I'm not having episodes it's kind of diminishing my quality of life. Why do I care that I'm not having episodes if I can't do the things I enjoy too? Yeah, that's true. Uh, it's just uh, a matter of weighing out, I guess, priorities. I mean, the, because the depressions were so bad and I was so close to suicide. So that's not going to be a, a solution to be, you know, to, to kill myself. I won't be doing art then. So you, you kind of have to weigh it out as far as uh, what, what you have to do versus what you would like to do versus what, you know, you used to do. Cause I used to be very creative and, and produce, you know, Buku's amount of work on my website. No, well, not my website on, on my Facebook, Michael Glenn Moore at, uh, on Facebook. I've got some of my artwork up and um, from not all of my artwork, artwork but probably from my uh, episodes that were very productive and um, so if you want to go out there and look at that, uh, I, I encourage you I'll, and, and give me some feedback as well. But, you know, and, and, I, and I, one thing I also miss is participating in art events and being involved in art event, events. You know, I can still go to a, an art opening and, you know, and look at the art and everything, but it's not the same as having a piece in a show right. or having a solo show. You know, it's, there's, there's something about creating your work and putting it out there for people to look at and, and to get feedback from, you know, how, how they think it looks and so forth. So that's just one thing that I'm, I do miss there as well. I'm nowhere near an art critic uh, in any way, shape or form, but I, I will ask this, how, how, uh, what kind of art did you produce? Like I know painting and sculpting, but I mean like, uh, were you a, a character, uh, uh, artist were you a uh, landscape artist or abstract artist like what what was what was usually your muse when you when you created i i am an abstract painter and i do paper mache sculpture which is well what i do are totems so they're about six to seven feet tall but they're covered in paper mache and textured in some of my paint and um and, and so forth, but I build sculpt, I build structures and then cover them with paper mache. My paintings, uh, the last few ones I've, I've done, the last 10 or 15 or so were 62 inches by 62 inches, which were kind of, kind of big. And they're, they're kind of, if you know Aboriginal art, it's similar to that in that I use a lot of dots and a lot of patterns. 
So my R is pattern real heavily. And then within the pattern is another pattern, another pattern and so forth. You know, it just keeps going and building on that. So there's a lot of dots and a lot of stripes or a lot of whatever, because I, I build pattern upon pattern upon pattern. And uh, I wind up with a, you know, when I know that it's finished, I stop and sign <laughs> it and, and that's about it. So, but, but yeah, and um, they were really popular, the large ones that I did. I've done smaller ones uh, as well that they're all gone now, but I've got some of the large ones left in my studio that haven't been, haven't been sold yet. So if I ever do have another show, I can draw back on some of my older work to, to show again or show for the first time because there's several pieces that I've never shown in a show uh, in, a, in a gallery or anything. So uh, I would definitely enjoy that, but I don't want to do anything, you know, like that until I'm creating new work. I don't want to just show my old work. I want to be able to create new work and have a show. Well, let, let's, let's uh, choose one of those paintings, for example. Uh, you, can, you can think of what, whichever one you want. Uh, that you have uh, that you've done and I, I really want to dig into the psyche of the artist because the, there's times I, again I'm not an art critic I, I can I can walk into the Philadelphia Art Museum and I'll look at something that's like oh that's pretty or oh that's nice but I mean I know there's people who actually you know dig really deep into the psychology of the of the, the piece the artwork you know uh, trying to figure out what the what the artist is trying to uh, relay through the through the picture uh or whatever you know um the inspiration behind it and all that so let's let's choose one one of the uh the pattern pictures for example and when you started do you have a plan in mind of like this is what i'm trying to convey in in this story and am i getting it out and all that like at the end of the day is it literally something you want somebody to stand back and be like well it speaks to me about the infinity of the universe or or you know, the, 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 the struggles of, of uh, modern society or, you, you know, the stories that people come up with. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of them that I did that, that, well, basically to answer your question, I don't start off every painting that way. Uh, now with my sculptures, I, I formulate what I want the sculpture to look like in my head for days and days or even weeks before I even start doing anything. And then right. I build it with wood and, and go from there. With my paintings, I usually start off with a large blank canvas and start working. Uh, now, one time where I did use something that was from my, from my own experience to make the art was uh, I had been to Mexico with some friends of mine and got bitten by a dog. And, uh, you know, I was so upset because I love animals and I love dogs. And I was like, you know, oh, I want to pet this dog. And the dog bit me on the leg. And I was freaked out because I was, you know, I had to take rabies shots when I right. came back to the States and everything. So I made a painting called Viciosos, which uh, means vicious in Spanish. And uh, I used a stencil that I made of a snarling dog in the in the painting so that's pretty much the only one that has something visually that is recognizable as something uh, everything else is pretty much abstract where you, there are patterns and everything but they're not recognized as anything like a face or you know the, in fact the Viciosos painting is the huge face with the with the small with the snarling dogs so you know that's really the only one that I've done that has the uh, aspect of saying okay well they, you know people read the title and they kind of you know if they, they understand what the, what the story is or they kind of think they know what the story is and if they don't you know I'm, I'm glad to tell them but uh, the other paintings uh, I'd rather people look at and kind of formulate an opinion on their own rather than base it on 
something that has come from me other than I, when I do, when I title the piece, that's putting something out there for them to think about. Like if I, I have a piece called whole W H O L E rather than H O L E. So, you know, it, it's just, how often, know, yeah, how often at a, at a show where you've put out your work and people are sitting there and obviously making the comments, like, like I was saying, you know, where they're, where they're really deconstructing the, the, the piece. How many times have you stood there and say they got it or, or more along the lines, like, dude, you're way off. No, I, I wouldn't tell them they're way off because it's the way I look at that is that it means something to them and that's a valid meaning. So, right. it, so it can't be wrong. Uh, it, it's make of what you wish. I don't want to be that much in control that they have to think about this or that I have to write a paragraph of saying, okay, this piece means this, the, the colors in this section represent this or anything like that. Uh, you know, I like for all of that to be interpreted by the viewer if possible. And I know that's a cop out about, you know, from, you know, what a lot of artists expect or a lot of viewers expect. But for me, I would rather not discuss my opinion on my art to limit, you know, I just don't want to limit it for the, the viewer. No, I get that. Like I said, again, I, I don't know the art world. You know, I, that's, a, that's a world I've never dabbled in. And when I say art, of course, I mean, there's different forms of art. So it's performance art, there's uh, musical art and stuff, stuff like that. And those worlds I, I've existed in. But I mean, as far as visual artwork, uh, paintings and, and sculptor, scu uh, sculptures and, you know, the, the, the statue with the three chairs stacked on top of each other and having a deeper life meaning than I completely understand because I see three kitchen chairs stacked together, you know, like I don't understand that. Well, I'm not dogging it in any way. I don't want to, I don't want to sound like I'm dogging it anyway. It's, it's literally coming from a place of, I don't know this world. So I, I really don't know the, the ins and outs and what, what artists hope to achieve and what uh, art lovers or, or followers gain from it. So, you know, that, that, that's why I'm asking the questions I'm asking because I'm, I'm trying to learn. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't, I don't want to be considered pretentious because I see that a lot in art in artists that they're kind of, they come across as pretentious when they, they do something and they say, Oh, well, this means because this means this and this and this and, and Oh, how deep am I that I thought of this? Um, you know, there's, there's one artist that I'm familiar with who does these shopping baskets where she weaves, um, you know, those light clip on lights that you get from Home Depot in the orange cording. She weaves that all through in and out this shopping cart and they go for millions of dollars. And um, I just don't understand that, but she's real popular and galleries buy her work and there's, she's shown in galleries. So how does that happen? was, is it because she went to school and she took, you know, she studied art and she got a master's in art or, or a doctorate in art. Uh, that's not something that, that's not the route I went. When I went to college, I studied English uh, and literature because I didn't want to be made to do my art. I was already an artist and I didn't want to, you know, looking back, I, I probably should have double majored, but I didn't. I just, you know, went for my English degree, but, uh, and I'm, I'm glad I did. There wasn't much I could do with it other than teach, but I'm glad I, I went that route. I'm not disappointed that I didn't become an art, you know, art major. Uh, and I've been asked to teach art as well in schools and I've turned that down. So I really don't want to, I, I just don't know how to approach it. But, um, you know, art, 
is, is well, something that people, I mean, it could be really very pretentious. It, it can be, like you said, it's, you know, you, you look at something and you see three check, stacked chairs and, you know, and probably, uh, you know, you're, you're not alone. Um, but, you know, what got, what took that artist from, to create those three stacked chairs to the gallery looking at that saying, wow, I've got to have this. You know, that's what's always fascinated me is that, that journey from the art, the artists to the gallery or to the, to the buyer. Well, you know, uh, and I'm going to preface this uh, in the beginning here of like art is art and, you know, an artist is an artist, you know, just like a musician is a musician. It doesn't matter the level of success, quote unquote, and I'm, you know, air quotations for the audio fans, you know, uh, success, success is success. It doesn't matter the level of it. You know, you as a musician, if you make it out of a garage, that's success. You know, it doesn't matter if you're only playing in a bar full of 50 people that are there for Taco Tuesday. Yes, I'm stealing from Bill and Ted's face music. I don't care. Um, you know, or uh, a movie actor who, who only does student films, you know, uh, that's still your, your face is out there. That's that success with that preface. It, all right. With most of the norm, uh, I don't want to use the term normal, but most of the performance side of, of art when you're looking at actors or you're looking at musicians, I'll use musicians because I'm a musician. So it, it makes sense to me. Like with the idea that music mm. writing and performing your own music is a success. Normally the ultimate goal for a musician is to get the record deal, go on tours, wind up releasing, you know, the Sgt. Pepper album or, or Pink Floyd's The Wall album, you know, something that stands the test of time and winds you up into the Music Hall of Fame or the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Same with, you know, I, I would imagine like sports people, you know, of course, playing the game is the ultimate success, but the, the ultimate goal is to wind up on a, a major league team and, and winning the championship of, of whatever sport that is and winding up in some Hall of Fame or even actors getting the Oscar and in a movie that becomes timeless like Star Wars or Gone with the Wind or something like that. For an artist, for, for a canvas or a sculptor artist, what is the ultimate goal? Is it, is it uh, just to sell the piece or is it to create the Picasso and wind up in a, you know, New York's, uh, art, you know, National Art Museum, you know, of history. And like, what is the ultimate goal usually for, for considered death to an artist? Yeah, for me, there are steps to it. There's finding a gallery to represent you, finding buyers or collectors, and then ultimately a museum. So once you're collected in a museum, that's pretty much your longevity there for forever because you'll be in their collection forever. You may not always be on the wall. You may be back in a back room somewhere, but you're still in that museum and they have your work and they, you know, that validates your work as being something that's important enough that a museum purchased it. So right. the ultimate goal, I think, is to be in a museum. Uh, and that, that could be any museum, really. Uh, just if you have that credit on your resume, that helps us, helps for securing galleries and it helps for securing collectors and so forth because if, if the collector knows that you're in a museum they, they think okay well this piece has value other than just being a piece of canvas with paint on it uh, you know before that that's all it was it's just a piece of canvas with paint on it but now it has value so um, I'm going to buy this piece and, and ultimately you know being a musician being a, an actor or any of the arts you want to be able to 
to survive and to sustain yourself in, through making money with what you do. And that's, that's a goal as well, is to be able to uh, make money off of, off of what you do best, what you love, and, uh-huh. and to support yourself. And so selling and things like that, that's important as well. Have you had any pieces go into a museum or, or, uh, no, um, unfortunately, no, that's never happened. I've, uh, and I've had difficulty uh, securing galleries too. And, you know, I've been told by other artists that, you know, Michael, you should be in galleries and things. And, um, I just don't, I just haven't done that. You know, there's a lot of work that goes into putting your art out there to sending brochures or whatever you you know, I don't know what it is today. Back in, back in the day, it used to be slides. You would send to galleries and they would view your slides and decide whether or not they want to represent you. Uh, okay. Today, I'm, I imagine it's digital art, d- doing digital. And, uh, you know, that means you have to have a good digital camera to take good digital images of your work. So, I mean, it, it, there's a lot involved and a lot of money involved in doing art. Uh, there's painting, there's paints, there's canvases, there's wood. I mean, I stretch my own canvases. So I buy the canvas, I buy the wood, I buy the paint, I buy the brushes. You know, you spend a lot of money just to do your art. And, right. you know, so it, it would, it's nice to, to, you know, sell work, which I do. I do sell my work. Um, and that helps me, you know, either buy other things like I bought, you know, I sold a piece and I bought uh, an air compressor so that I could have easier access to a staple gun that's air an air staple gun and also to a nailer so that when I build my canvas frames I use the nailer and when I stretch the canvas I use the staple gun so it's not as hard on my hands so that was a very good investment as far as I was concerned it was a thousand dollar investment that um, you know was well worth the, the amount that I spent out of any of your pieces up, most people love their work. Uh, again, as a musician, I can name off five, five songs, whether completed as songs or just still lyric sheets. I can name off five that I consider to be my masterpieces. You know, like uh, I love all my work, but there's five of them that I think are, are, if they were ever, if they were ever to represent me in the annals of time, I think they would be the ones that do it. As of right now, do you think you've created your masterpiece? Have you created your Van Gogh, your your Mona Lisa, your your Blue Period, or do you think you're still searching for it? I think I'm probably still searching for it. It's been so long since I've done a painting. I, I'm pretty sure that when I go back to painting, it's going to be something different than what I was doing before. You know, during the last time I painted, I kind of evolve. When I before I did the the large sixty-two by sixty-two paintings, I was doing these large paper paintings um, on, on paper and those kind of morphed into what the physical paintings on the canvas did. They weren't the same, but they were from that. So I'm sure that the next time I get to the canvas and I start creating that way, it'll be something new or something similar, but something new, or it could be totally in a different direction. Uh, you know, I've been thinking about doing more abstract, you know, expressionism, rather than doing the patterns and so forth where there's not even in you know, a discernible pattern. It's just more of a mood of the painting. Now with the sculpture, since I kind of formulate that in my head so much before I even do it, they kind of stay the same. They're, they're in the same vein for some reason. It's, it's just a different process for me to work on sculpture than it is for me to work on painting. And like I said, I, I, do a painting and I, I'm in front of a blank canvas and that's what, what excites me. I'm doing a sculpture and I have to, I feel like I have to be in more control 
of what I'm doing so that I know exactly, you know, how much wood I need to buy and what the, what the form is going to look like before I put the paper mache on it and what kind of surfaces am I going to give the, the paper mache before I, you know, do all that. So that's something that I work over in my head. And, uh, you know, there are several sculptures that I haven't done yet, but they're up in my head. Uh, so hopefully at some point I will get around to creating those. Well, I hope I have inspired you. <laughs> well, it, it is inspiring to talk about it, uh, is, but it's another thing to actually do it. <laughs> so it, I, I, will, I will happily uh, defer the rest of my time back to the host of the show. I've taken over uh, coast and coast long enough, but uh, see, I proved why breaking the fourth wall has to do interviews. It's kind of my thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we were going to talk about kids. Um, buddy films in the 80s and 90s but i think we've talked about 30 minutes or so so we have about 30 minutes left to go and our second topic was going to be school um schools reopening during the covid crisis so do you want to go ahead and just just forget the kids buddy films until we get more podcasters with us and then go ahead and um go to the the school crisis yeah because i i i can't i can't uh forget kids buddy films and and for people that that are listening that what we mean by kids buddy films we 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 mean like the old 80s 70s and 80s style films that were all about uh you know like the the group of kids like think of lean on me or think of uh the goonies like those styles of movies where the kids get together and go on an adventure and and you know when i say kids it's, it's it's not your you know horror movie teenagers that are in their thirties, but we're supposed to believe they're 17. I'm talking like actual children, you know, and so like, yeah, see, yeah, we can, we can move those on to another day so we can, we can get into Yeah, them. I'm 58. So my kids films were in the seventies. So I've got bad news bears and mighty ducks and things like that. Exactly. Uh, so, and, and then I've, I, I've never seen Goonies. I've seen stand by me, but I, I tried watching Goonies and well, we'll get to that. But anyway, I tried watching Goonies and just couldn't, couldn't do it. I, you know, it was, I didn't. Dude, that's a disservice to yourself. I know, and I'm going to go back and try it again. Uh, in fact, I tried it recently, as when I decided, I, you know, I knew we were going to have this topic, and Goonies would definitely come up. I thought, well, I better watch that film, and uh, I just got bored at the very beginning. So I probably should have gone a little bit further to get the hook, you know, so that I could watch the whole thing. But I'll give it like, another shot. Do you like horror movies, like the old Universal horror monsters? Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, then I recommend you watch uh, before the before we have the conversation. I recommend you watch Monster Squad. Oh, okay, cool. That that'll be that'll be the one that'll not only give you the 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 kids buddy movie that I'm talking about, but it, it'll be in a, a genre that you understand and, and appreciate. Where Goonies may not because it's just a rompy adventure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, there's there's from the film some some of the stills from from goonies there are, are kind of characters in that that are monstery aren't they uh are kind of uh hit the hills have eyes like like characters you're, you're talking about sloth uh i don't want to spoil it but sloth isn't necessarily a monster he's just somebody who's had a very abusive past i'll leave it at that okay his physical disfigurements was was due to natural causes as opposed to supernatural okay okay yeah if you well, call abuse the natural <laughs> let's go ahead and uh, start our topic with uh covid with schools reopening during covid 
crisis. Uh, something that has just happened recently, a girl in Oklahoma City was suspended for taking a photograph of the hallway in her school that was packed with kids in very few masks. Uh, what do you feel about that? How do you feel about somebody being suspended for posting a, a photograph that was taken negative towards the school? And that's what the school said they didn't like. They didn't like the aspect of her showing their school in a bad light. Uh, so they suspended her for five days. But what she was doing was trying to show that, hey, this is not going to work. You know, these kids are not um, living up to their end. Um, I mean, I, I'm going to I'm going to jump very close to political on this um, and I don't mean to. So I apologize right off the bat. But I think the school is way too schools in general as school boards and no matter where you're from are way too interested in, in looking politically correct, looking to be uh, perceived as, as decently correct as opposed to doing what is in the best interest of the child. No, I don't agree this, this woman or this, this, this girl should have been suspended. Uh, I don't think there should be any type of re uh, reprimand, uh, reprimand for what she did. She exposed a problem in the school and the school should, their, their correct reaction would be, how do we fix this? Not let's silence the person exposing the problem. That's, have you, that's have you seen that image that I'm talking I have, about? I have not. Okay. Well, it looks like wall-to-wall -wall kids. I mean, there are so many kids in that, in that hallway you, can't, you couldn't move. So it's very shocking because I, I thought that, that they were approaching the reopening in phases, like, two, like three days a week, this many kids come to the school, and then three days a week or two days a week, this many kids come to the school. And it's staggered, but apparently – in Oklahoma, they just all came at once, or there was such a big school that even the ones that they staggered is, is too many. You would think they would at least stagger the times that the classes change so that there won't be so many people in the hallway rather than the bell going off at 10 a.m. and everybody, you know, going to their next class at one time. No, you're absolutely right. I thought they were supposed to reduce it down to like, uh, at last I heard, at least here in Philadelphia, uh, the idea that I heard was that it was supposed to be 25% uh, capacity same as like restaurants so you would only get uh, a quarter of the school in at any one point and uh, of course that raised the question to me it's like well does that mean that they lose their their spring break and their summer vacation because you got to make up the time you're losing because if if you know uh, first through third grade for example are are Monday and then fourth through sixth is Tuesday and then Wednesday they shut down for cleaning and then Thursday it's seventh and eighth graders. And then Friday is, uh, you know, uh, sp special classes, just for the sake of argument, where you're keeping less than a couple hundred kids in, in the school. I, again, I'm exaggerating numbers. They're not getting the attention on the time frame that is normally allotted to a school, uh, a normal school uh, session, which would be from, you know, seven o'clock in the morning till three o'clock in the afternoon, Monday through Friday for, nine months out of the year on average. So, I mean, the kids are already losing a lot anyway. You, you got to trim the fat to it. And I don't like saying that because of the fact that being uh, an entertainer and, and a person who believes in the arts, one of the first things that's obviously going to be trimmed uh, to, to a lot times for the, the, you know, the reading, writing, arithmetic, and, you know, all the, all the important stuff would be the elected things like music, 
art, you know, uh, home economics, uh, things that are important, but not as necessarily important as social studies, science, math, you know, reading. Um, so I get that, that, that those would be the first projects or, or, or uh, classes to go to try to slim down time. Uh, but I don't know. I just, a lot of it doesn't make sense to me. To me right now, and I've got my own opinions on COVID in general, but to me right now, if we're going to play it safe, it seems to me the best way to handle it is homeschooling. I wouldn't open the school. If you don't think it's safe and you don't think you could follow a curriculum that's not going to harm the children uh, and, and, and have them wind up losing something in turn, then the best course of action to me is just set up times at home. Yeah, I agree. Uh, somebody on Facebook uh, today that I saw mentioned that a good idea that I thought, you know, that I thought was a good idea was having a, a television station who did 24 seven classes uh, for people who don't have access to a computer uh, and Wi-Fi because most people have access to television. So they would be able to turn in, tune into this station, you know, like 26, whatever, and, and right. at whatever hour and have English and or or have algebra and, and so forth so that they could learn you know but but in order to do that it had to be nationally okay programs and and schools doesn't schools don't work that way they're done by state by state uh so i don't know how that would huh not necessarily uh, the, the way you the way you handle it is have uh, public broadcasting handle it all public broadcasting is is uh is usually city or statewide so you follow the city and state school board uh, you know, like for here, we have PBS, you know, public broadcasting systems, uh, who usually, you know, instead of showing Sesame Street, show your, your classes and, and find teachers that can teach and set up hours and times of like, okay, here's third grade English, have your kids tune in at eight o'clock from eight to nine for third grade English. And, you know, they could do that and, and all. And I, I don't think that's a terrible idea, but I think, I think I would put it in the hands of non-profit groups something like, like public, public access. access as well yeah like public access so that way we could donate to help but it's not something that some big wig uh place like abc is making money off of it you know what i mean so it, it goes back to helping the students but the other thing you got to do too is you got to do something that needs to happen in, in schools especially in colleges nowadays you got to take opinions out of it and leave it completely facts. Part of the problems that we have in a lot of today's society is teachers are now putting their own points of view on the things they teach. And that's not okay. Like you're allowed to have your opinion. You're allowed to have your point of view. I don't care if, what, if it's political, if it's uh, sexual orientation, it's whatever. If it's not cold hard facts to, to the curriculum at hand, then you have no business talking about it. And I, especially in this type of forum, I think you have to have it be as unbiased and straight down the middle neutral as you can. So that way you're not, not only not offending your audience, but everybody is getting the correct type of, of education. You know, you can't, you can't sit there and, you know, it always bugs me when you hear about a college professor teaching teaching some sort of a uh, class. I, I don't care what class it is. And the first thing you hear about is like, well, he, he says, fuck Trump. 
why are you saying that in the classroom? That's nobody's business. If that's your political point of view, that's your political point of view. I don't care if you're a Trump supporter or not. You're not being paid to pass your point of view to the students. You are pay, being paid to teach that curriculum to the students. So if we're going to do that, we have to have some sort of regulation to, to make sure that they follow the prescribed teachings of the Board of Education for your particular district, schools, or whatever. So that way, nobody is getting misinformation in their schooling. And the reason that's important right now is because this could be, if we did this, this could be that particular year for that student completely. And you don't want to have them misinformed going into the following year or God forbid, if we're talking about like seniors, you know, getting ready to go out into the real world and the last bit of education they get is, is, is wrong. Yeah, that, that is something. Um, something else, another statistic that really shocked me and, and scared me was that, you know, one out of every three children who come down with COVID wind up in the intensive care. So we're looking at thousands and thousands and thousands of kids going to school, being around each other, and possibly passing on this, this virus. And the talk had been before that, you know, what, we may lose 14,000 children at the, at the least or at the most. Uh, it, it seems one out of three, it, that would be a lot more than that. And I just don't think that it's worth taking that risk with children. I think, like you said, homeschooling or some form of, of being at home and doing the, the curriculum is, is really the best thing to do. But uh, I think even Dr. Fauci has said now that school's okay. So I, I just don't know what to think. If you're going to do it, if you're going to do it, you got to do it right. It's a plain and simple. If you're going to, no matter what the, the, the idea is, the, 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 the founding foundation of this is that the kids need to be educated. Now, whether that's the responsibility of mom and dad this year and actually, you know, going online and getting the curriculum from the school, the school board and following it, releasing textbooks uh, uh, for download, PDF downloads, so that way you could, you know, mentor your kids themselves, yourselves. If that's what you got to do, that's what you got to do. If we do it like the public access way, like we were just speculating, then do it the way you got to do it. If we're going to go to schools, we got to do it the way that would be best interest. Because I'm sorry, the one thing that doesn't, doesn't sit well with me, and I'm a parent, but uh, even if I wasn't a parent, it still wouldn't sit well to me. 1,400 kids is not acceptable. I don't care the reasoning. I agree that education is important. It's one of the most important things that children could have. But I'm not going to offer the slam the, sl the lamb to slaughter simply because, well, you know, it's an acceptable loss. We're not talking about war. We're talking about a virus. You know, war, you expect casualties. It's, it's a part of war. Education is not war. One child's life is too much. And it, it bothers me anyway because the, it goes back to the misinformation thing that I was talking about with education. It's just like the misinformation before they were talking about that kids were basically immune to COVID that it was affecting adults and especially elderly adults, mostly, you know, in, in, a, in a fatal capacity. Now, all of a sudden, one in three kids, you know, it, 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 it's like, if you don't know, don't say it yeah. is, it's my motto, you know, in this. And, you know, if we're going to go to schools, if we're going to do the schools and we're going to do the 25%, the big thing I can think of is we got to get parents and, and people to volunteer to be school aides. 
they got to come in and make sure the kids are following the rules, that they're wearing their masks, that they're staying six uh, feet apart from each other, that they're following the guidelines and not goofing around and, and, and dicking around in the hallways and sneezing on each other and coughing on each other and, and taking the unnecessary risks that most kids, especially younger kids, are not going to take seriously anyway. You know, something that has crossed my mind with all the uh, COVID relief that the government's doing is that they haven't talked about purchasing uh, laptops or tablets for kids who can't afford them. That would help a lot in the way of having homeschool and doing video uh, learning, you know, at home is if these kids who, of course, they'd have to figure out a way for them to get Wi-Fi if they don't have Wi-Fi. So that's a problem. But, you know, take your kids to Barnes and Noble or to the library and let them, of course, I think the library is the answer. Yeah. Every, every town has a free library. It doesn't cost anything to get a library card. And especially in this particular case, you probably don't even need a library card. Libraries already have computers. But that's Go a public space. So that's, that's kind of, you know, the same way with Barnes and Noble. I mean, not Barnes and Noble, but uh, um, that other one, I can't remember the uh, uh, Starbucks. Uh, they have a, uh, Wi-Fi usually for you to, to go in and free access to. And you can sit in the parking lot and access that so you don't have to go in. And I think the library is the same way. You don't have to actually go in. You can access the Wi-Fi from outside in the parking lot. So, I mean, there's ways to get to it. Uh, but, you know, a lot of these families can't afford to buy tablets for their kids. So why doesn't the government step up and say, hey, you know, part of this plan that we're going to approve will have so much money set aside for Less, income, less fortunate families to have tablets for their children. Well, that's exactly it. And, and, and that, that's where I was going to go with it. It's like, well, first off, you got the public libraries for people who don't own tablets or computers. But most everybody in America has a smartphone. And a smartphone is just basically a smaller version of a tablet, especially nowadays. This thing right here in my hand, it's an Apple, by the way, for people who don't know. You know, this thing is actually stronger than the computer I'm recording this thing on. It's actually more powerful than the computer I do the podcasting through. To me, today, today's society, there's no excuse why a child couldn't go online and do it, with one few exceptions, and that's large families. Maybe you don't have multiple computers or multiple phones uh, for, for multiple children to be able to, to, to access. Well, again, that's why we go back to uh, public access spaces like Starbucks or, or, or the, the public library, you know, for them to be able to do it. But I do agree, you know, like w during the Obama administration, he tried to make it where everybody had a cell phone. So you had the Obama phone go out for a while, you know, and stuff like that. Well, sure. How many people throw away tablets when they buy the new one or, or throw away last year's uh, iPhone for the brand new one? Instead of throwing those away, donate it to education and send them out free to people. Oh, great idea. Yeah. You know? There's your answer right there. We're filling up landfills with old technology that nobody's using anymore. You know, and when I say by old technology, I mean a year, two years old. They're, they're, I'm not talking about like the Commodore 64, you know, or, you know, or the well, I, IB, IBM Pentium 1. I've got know. two desktops and a laptop that are out of date for me. You know, if I had known of, if I know, knew of someplace that I could donate them, that would be great. I'd definitely go for that. I think that would be the smartest way to do it. If, if the board of education and the, uh, the, the municipality governments uh, turn around and just got their, their citizens to donate old tech to be able to be shipped out to, to, to uh, families that do not have the equipment to be able to homeschool 
the way we were discussing, like through a Skype call or whatever, as long as it's powerful enough to accept internet and Skype or Zoom or whatever else. So that way the, the teacher could teach the students. I think that's a win. I think yeah. that's a win. I think that's an answer to the cause and it doesn't cost anybody anything. Go drop it off at a designated center, be it a police station or a school. You know what I mean? Set up days to drop off this technology, old phones, old tablets, old laptops at a school and then redistribute to the ones that apply for it that don't have the means to be able to go out and just buy their own. So what are, what does it look like in, in your city? You're in Philadelphia. Have schools opened yet or is that coming up or? That's, that's coming up. Uh, here in Philadelphia, schools don't usually open until after Labor Day. Yeah, I think um, Louisiana is going to be a little bit later, too, because the governor just came out and said they're going to push it back because because we're one of the states that have the the second wave or whatever, or actually the first wave bigger or however they're looking at now. Right. But, um, so we're like we're right there with Texas and Florida as far as uh, the new cases and, and everything. So how about you personally? How do you uh, deal with COVID? Are you I know you're working. How, how does that happen? Does, do you wear a mask at work or? No, no, I, I work outside. So, and, I'm and, uh, I don't, I work with one other guy and we're never near each other. So <laughs> we're fine. Uh, like I'll wear a mask when I'm dealing with a customer being a fence installer, I'll wear a mask when I'm dealing with the customer, but when I'm out actually, you know, digging holes and, and pouring concrete for posts, um, I don't have to wear a mask. I have nobody around me you know, to do it. But, uh, uh, yeah, on average, I mean, I, Look, I have my points of view on, on masks, and I have my points of view on the COVID crisis. I don't think COVID is as bad as it's made out to be in the media. I think it's an amped up flu, for lack of a better term. Don't shoot me for it, because what I'm saying is, is even though I have my personal points of view, I follow the rules and regulations laid down to me for safety of others because i do care about others although i don't think the mask is the 100 percent safety factor for covid i still wear one when i go into a store i still wear one when i walk into a grocery i still wear one when i go into a place with other people you know well, it's I mean? required here they have the mayor came out with the you know rule that you had to wear anytime you go into a public space you have to be have a have a mask on or you can be fined yeah, that's the same. See, that's some of the things that I disagree with with the COVID crisis. Is, uh, you know, during this crisis, we let prisoners, dangerous prisoners, out of, out of jail, out of prison because of fear of infection from coronavirus. But you'll throw me here in Pennsylvania, you'll throw me in jail for 90 days if I don't put a mask on when I walk into a Walmart. Well, I don't think here it's, it's a matter of, being, of going to jail. It's just a matter of paying a fine. So here, just to, here's yeah. jail. Oh my gosh, that's that's that, I, I agree. It's, it's kind of too far. Well, it, it, it's hypocritical. We'll let dangerous criminals out because we don't want them to get sick. But if you won't wear a mask in a public place, we'll throw you in a place we we're letting other people out of for fear of infection. Yeah, makes no sense. That's crazy. You know, but uh, the, the, neither here nor there. What my point of view of, of the crisis and the pandemic is is irrelevant. The fact of the matter is, is that if this is what's recommended to try to help end this pandemic and let life go back to some semblance of normal, then I'm going to do it. I may not agree with it. I may not like it, but I'm still going to do it. You know what I mean? So my governor is a piece of crap. Tom Wolf is, is garbage. And he's, he is completely using it for political means. He's, he's, he's not even hiding it. It's a political agenda to him. 
but he laid down the law. I'm going to follow the law, not because I agree with it, but because I'd rather, I'd rather err on the side of caution than know I'm right and what find out that I'm not and wind up not hurting myself. I don't care about me, but the people around me, the people I love, the people I care about some stranger down the street, something happened to them and it's my fault. No, I wouldn't do that. So, yeah, well, especially your, your kids, you know, especially my and your kids, wife, your, your soon to be wife, soon to be wife, but I still wouldn't want that on my conscience, even if it was a stranger, somebody just down the street and I cough and, you know, I thought it was a smoker's cough cause I'm a smoker, you know, a smoker's cough. <coughs> oh, sorry. And later on that person dies and that was my fault. I wouldn't want that on my conscience. You know what I mean? So to me, it's like, as much as I may not agree with a lot of the rules and regulations, it really isn't affecting me so much to still follow. I could voice my opinion on it all day, but at the end of the day, I'm still going to follow it because I'd rather be safe than sorry. Yeah, that's, that's, I agree. Rather than be safe than sorry. Uh, and plus I have, I have, you know, I live with my mother. She's 84 years old. I mean, 85. And um, she has one and a half lungs. So there's, you know, diabetic, high blood pressure, all the things weigh against her. So if she came down, the, the likelihood of them really trying to help her is probably low to begin with because she's old. So they're going to probably do less for her than they would for somebody who's in their fifties. I'm 58 and I have high blood pressure and diabetes. And I don't know what these medications for my bipolar, how that affects my immune and so forth. So I don't know what my, my chances are. That's the only thing that, that scares me about COVID other than over the the regular flu that we've been getting vaccines for all these years is that it's so fatal to some people, you know, right. it's almost a guarantee. And at least with the flu, you can maybe, you know, wait it out a, a couple of weeks at the most and you'll be okay. But with COVID, if it hits you badly, you know, you may not have a couple of weeks, you're maybe gone with, you know, right. within days, you know, and go into the hospital and have to be intubated and, and all that. And then we know when they, when they intubate you, they have to give you all these powerful drugs to keep you in a coma. So, it's, you know, you're not uncomfortable with the tube going down your throat and something breathing for you. So, I mean, there's all kinds of aspects of this that scares me, but uh, I think the main thing is that, that I live with my mother and I don't want her to get sick. Well, no, you're not, you're not wrong. I mean, uh, you, you, you know, this people, people on air may not, but you know, this, how, how much did I bitch for the last six months that I didn't see my kids. I've got the, first weekend I've had in six months this weekend right now uh, with my children because they're 11 and 10 years old, you know, and, uh, and all, and, and they were fearful of the, of the virus and stuff. I mean, I went, I went on lockdown for, for a couple weeks uh, from my job when this first came out and they really didn't know anything about it. Uh, as far as normal life, those are the things that were inconvenient to me, if you will. As far as normalcy in my life, dude, I'm a hermit. I don't go out anyway. So it really didn't bother me. The, the going to Walmart once a week or, or Acme once a week to pick up my groceries and stuff was the only time I stepped out of the house outside of like work. So it really, to me, it was just another day and still is in that aspect. It's just the inconvenience of putting on a mask or carrying one with me or, oh God, did I remember to grab a mask, you know, from the house when I left, you know, but at this point it's kind of second nature on that. I've got a mask in my pocket right now. I'm sitting in my basement, you know what I mean? So it, it's just, it, it's, you kind of get used to it. 
but the inconveniences to me, uh, the worst ones was not being able to see my kids. And with being a divorced father, I only get them every other weekend to begin. I get 48 days out of the year, you know, uh, to, to, to spend time with my kids. So every single weekend that I lost the COVID is a weekend I can never get back. That was the thing that bothered me the most, quite honestly. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I'm a hermit as well. I don't get out that much at all. I we're buying all our groceries through either Walmart or Brookshire's and I pick them up curbside. So my, uh, you know, being around somebody is, is lessened that way as well. I, mm-hmm. I can't name the last time I've actually been into a store and my mother hasn't either. She, you know, I make her stay at home. So she hasn't been able to get out. Um, sometimes she goes out and she goes through drive throughs and buys food and things like that that she's craving, which worries me too, but you no, know, she feels like she's safe. So there's not much I can do. She's, she's older than I am, <laughs> you know, but, uh, Good luck telling your mom what to do. Yeah. 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 So, okay. Well, I'm 43 years old. My mother, my mother, you know, to this day, my mother's 64. She still scares the shit out of me. She says I do without question. I mean, it's just, it's just the way it is. You know? yeah. I'm a grown man with my own kids, but my mother tells me to clean my room. Guess what I'm doing? <laughs> you know what I mean? That's funny. <laughs> Well, Chris, let's, I guess we'll call that an end for today. We've been about an hour or so, maybe a little bit more. Um, so I want to thank you for being here and being taking time to, to come on the show. Um, I wish our other two guests were able to join us, but they had things come up. So uh, maybe next time we'll have more than two. And uh, yeah, because our goal is to have at least four podcasters from the SJ Network on a show and uh, pr- preferably five if possible. But um, in the last couple of weeks, we haven't really had the, the means to do that. It has, things just haven't worked out. But everybody's, you know, busy doing different things as well. So uh, hopefully. I, think, I think you and I discussed about changing, uh, changing the recording times for this to be able to fit people's schedules a little better, too, as opposed to uh, like now for, for people listening. Uh, we're recording this at 6 o'clock in the afternoon Eastern Standard Time right now on a Saturday and we, we discovered talking to some of the people that were supposed to be involved that a weekday uh, schedule later at night would be more feasible for them. So I think, I think we're going to be doing that. So that way uh, hopefully we'll unlock more potential for, for more of our guests. Yeah, that's a good idea. We'll, we'll definitely plan that out the next time. Okay guys. So from coast to coast power hour, this has been Michael Glenn Moore and Chris Rostali. And we'll talk to you later. Later. The Coast to Coast Power Hour is part of the SJ Network. Go to s-j-network.com for more information.